Welcome to Three Strands Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Glad you guys are here. We're right in the middle of a short three-week series called From Messes to Successes. We're looking at three different characters or illustrations from God's Word of people who messed up their lives royally, who uh, made big mistakes, got way off track, and yet somehow God, through His Son Jesus, was able to bring them back to success, to make their life a success. And so maybe you'll relate with one of these characters. We looked at Um, Paul last week, the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, went by the name of Saul. And I said he was maybe the hardest mess up to fix because he was super messed up but didn't know it. And I've been messed up but like knew it. And it's like it's even worse when you're messed up and you don't know it because you don't even know there's something that needs fixed. And so that was him. But today we're going to look at a new one. It's a fictional character from the Bible. It's a story that Jesus told. It didn't really happen but he uses an illustration, a story. And so um, I want to give you some of the context. If you want to follow along with us, we'll be in Luke chapter 15. If you want to turn there in a Bible app or on your hard copy of the Bible, all the verses will be on the screen for the most part that we're going to look at. But if you want to follow along on your own, you can. So Luke chapter 15. So here's what's going on. There's some grumbling and complaining. Now I know in the church today, like there's no grumbling and complaining. Christians have graduated from that. Nobody complains Nobody grumbles. Nobody gets upset about anything, right? That's right? Is that right? Okay. Every church, maybe just this church is like that. We don't ever grumble or complain about anything, right? But, um, and so uh, there was some grumbling and complaining going on. So here's the deal. Jesus would go out and he would teach a lot. He would um, go to people's houses and have meals often. He would hang out with a lot of people. And there were a lot of people that didn't look like the kind of people he should be hanging out with. They were sinners. Now, I know there's no sinners in here. We're probably all, like, crushing it, doing it all right. But Jesus used to hang out with a lot of sinful people. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the teachers of religious law, they didn't like that. That wasn't how they rolled. They didn't hang out with the scumbags. The dirtballs, the sinners, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the other notorious sinners, the Bible says. But Jesus did. So they didn't like that. So they came to Jesus and started griping at him about it. How dare you hang out with these sinners? And and even worse than that, you go eat with them. You hang out with them like socially. You don't even just like let them come here you teach. That'd be okay, I guess. But you even go like chill with them on the side, complaining about it. And Jesus in Luke chapter 15 then sets out to give an example why he does that. He tries to take their complaining and address it. And to do it, he's going to tell us three different stories. Now, I don't know, maybe they just weren't very bright like me. And so maybe they needed like three stories to kind of drive home the point. You would think he could just give them one example and that'd be enough, but he gives them three different stories. We're not going to look at all three of them today. We're just going to look at one, but let me tell you about the first two he gives. So the first one he says is this, because I need you to understand the point of the chapter. It's very easy in church settings for somebody to get up front and sound like they're telling the truth. 
They just say it loud enough, fiery enough, or you know, passionately enough, and everybody kind of believes them and takes their word for it. But I want us to be good students of the word at our church. I want us to see God's word for what it really means, understand it, and then live based on that, okay? So I want you to be a good, and, you, and I've heard this passage taught many times in my life and, and used to, to kind of drive home very many points, but there's only one point. Now, we can get some secondary instruction and encouragement and challenge out of the passage, but there's only one reason Jesus tells all three of these stories. It's to stop the complaining that the Pharisees are giving him about what he's been doing. Okay, so he's going to, let me give it. So the first story he tells is about a shepherd. He says, suppose a shepherd had a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Now, don't you think that shepherd would leave the 99 sheep that he has and go looking for the one that got lost? And, and if he found that one sheep that was lost, don't you think he'd pick it up, put it on his shoulders, carry it back home, and be super glad when he got back with it? Don't you think he'd be so happy that he'd like call his neighbors and his friends and be like, I found my sheep. You can stop looking for my sheep. I found the one that was lost. It's on my shoulders. We're all good now and celebrate. And then he says, then he's going to drive home the point of the story. It's the same thing that he drives home for all three stories. And he says, that's just what it's like in heaven Whenever one of God's children who have been lost come home and find him. Rejoicing, celebrating, calling your neighbors and friends, being like full of just this like, ah, oh, thankful, happy feeling, right? Then he tells the second story. He says, suppose there was this woman and she had 10 coins. Now these coins were like the equivalent, like one coin would be the equivalent of like a day's wage, Okay, back then, these coins he's talking about. So he says, say, say there's this woman, she's got 10 coins. We'll call that maybe like, let's call that like a thousand bucks. All right? Maybe it's not quite that. Let's call like each coin about a hundred bucks. And, and it depends on your job, I guess. But so she has a thousand bucks and she loses one coin. So she lost. I know, I good, that's good. Good. Math class, math class there. So she loses like a hundred bucks. What do you think she'd do? What would you do? If you had a thousand bucks and you lost a hundred, would you be like, oh, I'm good. I got 900 still. No, he says, what would she do? She'd go through the house, sweeping, looking under furniture, hunting for the one lost coin. She might even call some friends to come help her look for it. And if she found it, wouldn't she be like, oh, wouldn't she call those same friends and neighbors over, he says, and celebrate she thought she was down 100, but instead she had all the cash. Wouldn't she be pumped? And he said, it's just what it's like in heaven whenever one lost soul, not coin, finally comes home. There's just like much rejoicing. It's like God calls all the angels together and they're like, another one. And the angels are celebrating and rejoicing and pumped up, just like when there's one of God's children who gets lost and finally comes home. That's the point. Okay, you with me on the point of the whole passage? So well, they were complaining because Jesus was spending too much time with sinners that they thought they were better than. 
that they thought they were trying to do all the right things in life. These people are intentionally doing all the wrong things, and there you are spending time with them, not just condemning them, not just teaching them, but literally chilling with them and eating meals together. You're socializing too much with the wicked. And Jesus tells them these three stories, and the first two should show it to you, to say to them, don't you understand those wicked ones, those sinful ones that you say I'm spending all this time with, they're what matters to God. All he wants more than anything else in the whole world is for just one of them to turn around and be like, I need you, Lord. Now put the thoughts together to to understand the point of the whole passage. What he's saying is like, you're complaining because I'm spending too much time with sinners. I'm entertaining them. I'm, 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 I'm maybe I'm, 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 I'm like, by just my friendship, I'm, I'm putting off the wrong vibe. I'm telling them the wrong message. I should be judging them, screaming at them, complaining. But here I am eating with them, hanging out with them. And you're, you don't like that. You're complaining. And Jesus says, but they are the mission. They are what matters. And I just have to put those two thoughts together. And what he's really saying is like, I have to spend time with them or I'll never accomplish the goal. They won't just magically come to God. They won't just magically get their life right, figure it out, turn themselves around. They need me to go hunting for them. They need me to sweep through the house looking under the chairs for them. They need me to do whatever it takes to spend as much time as I have to with them so that one of them will come home to God. And I can't do that if I don't hang with them. Do you get it? Now, there are some churches in this world that don't want what they call sinners to come in. That is not this church. There are some pastors in this world that don't want sinners to hang with them. That is not this pastor. So that'll never be our church. That'll never be my approach. I just want to be up front with you. What I want right now is for the dirtiest, most sinful, most messed up people who are just like me to come through the doors and find grace. Come back to God so that we can celebrate, so that angels can rejoice, so that God can breathe a sigh of relief and be like, oh, my son, my daughter was lost and now they're found. They were dead, but now they're alive. That's the mission. It is the only mission. There is nothing else. And so if I avoid all those people that I think are less than me, inferior to me, worse than me, more sinful than me, how will I ever find any of them? How will I ever help rescue any of them? How will I ever draw and drive and correct and change any of their minds about God? I have to be around sinful people. And newsflash, we're all sinful. So nobody can come through the doors of this church and be too sinful to be here. Nobody can call me up or text me and be too messed up for me to hang out with them and eat dinner with them. Nobody. Because they are the goal. And I can't reach the goal if I'm not around them. That's the back frame. That's the backstory of what's going on in Luke chapter 15. Everybody on the same page? I want you to remember the purpose of the stories so we don't dive off into some made-up meaning from the text. 
but we stay true to what Jesus is trying to communicate here. So then he's going to tell them a third story. It's going to drive home the same point. I'm going to read through most of it with you. It starts in verse 11, and here's how it kicks off. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. He said, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now. If you're an underliner, just underline that word now. I want the, your share, my share of your estate now, he said, before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. All right. Now I want you to see how messed up this really is, what the dude does. Th think about it for a second. What he's really saying to his dad is this. You ready? I wish you were dead. I'm sick of having to wait around for you to die to get my inheritance. Imagine if your child came to you and they were like, or, or imagine if you were the kid and you went to your parent and you said this same thing to them, how they would feel. Imagine if it was your child saying this to you, how you would feel. I wish you were just dead. Can't you give me whatever you're going to leave to me now so I can get away from you with it? That's what he says to his dad. And the dad doesn't scream at him, doesn't refuse. The dad says like, sure, son. And he adds up all of his wealth, gives half of it to this younger son. And the younger son then steps on him again, doesn't, doesn't, isn't like, thanks, Dad, I really appreciate it. I'm going to try to use this the best I can. I'm going to invest it and even make more out of it and do great things with my life because of the gift you've given me. No, he waits just a couple days. He's like, see you, Pops, packs up his stuff, moves to a distant land, doesn't invest any of the money, doesn't use it wisely. Instead, he parties with it. Blows it all. Got nothing left. You got to be pretty proud to go to your parent and act like that. You got to be pretty full of you to go to your mom or dad and be like, I wish you were dead. Give me some money so I can get away from you. You got to be pretty all about you. She, he, he, he wanted what he wanted, and he wanted it now. There's such a correlation between pride and now, right? I'm not waiting. Give it to me now. This is his problem, pride. Now listen, I want you to write down just a couple things today. Here's the first one. You ready? Pride, pride always, always tricks you into hiding. That doesn't look like he hid, but he did. He, he ran away, basically. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm done living this life. I'm going somewhere where nobody will tell me what to do, where nobody knows me, and I can just be free to be me. The problem with running away from your problems is that you always take you with yourself. So you get to the new place, and eventually all the exact same problems still show up because you're still there. It turns out everybody else isn't the reason that you're full of pride. It turns out everybody else isn't what was holding you back. It turns out you were your own worst enemy. And you drive cross country and you move out of state and you get away from the people you've been around. And it turns out you still got a bunch of problems when you get there. Because I'm messed up. I want what I want and I want it right now. And so you hide. So whether you're Adam and Eve hiding in the garden whether you're the prodigal son running to a distant land to party, whether you're King David trying to cover up your crime and leads to murder because you're such a 
coward, you're hiding from it all. Whether you're the woman who's been bleeding for 12 straight years, hemorrhaging, how many people, how many of the ladies in the room would like to have your special time of the month nonstop for 12 years? So here she is bleeding for 12 years and she sneaks up in the crowd to get to Jesus. So nobody will see her because she came going to the temple to worship. So she sneaks up behind him hiding from the rest of the world, ashamed. And we're this strange mix on the inside of pride and shame at the same time. We think we're so valuable and so important that everybody should just do what we want, give us what we want, and do what we say. And at the same time, we're absolutely terrified that people will find out what's really wrong with us. We're this weird mix of like pride and shame all rolled into one. So here's what happens. Let me show you what happens. Look at verse 14. About the time his money ran out, underline that too if you're an underline, I love that. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. You think it's just a coincidence that like just when he ran out of money, disaster struck? You think it's just a coincidence? You think it's like divine like appointment there? So he runs out of money and at the exact same moment, a famine sweeps over the land and he began to starve. Verse 15 He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. You see the scene? He's broke. He's wasted all of his money drinking, sleeping around, throwing parties. He's out of cash. He needs money, can't find a job. He finally finds this farmer who hires him to feed his pigs. And he's so hungry that he starts eating the pig slop. Now in our world today, you might call this moment rock bottom. Is that fair to say? I mean, it might not be a gutter on the side of the street. It might not be a back alley. It might not be some broken down place that doesn't have electricity in it. And you're trying to like just make do because you're about to be homeless. And you've spent everything you've got on drugs or alcohol or gambling or women or men or whatever. And you're like just sitting there, life in shambles, completely messed up, rock bottom. That's where this guy's at. Eating pig food. With nothing. And I'm going to show you in just a second. I'll read it to you in the text. But what he starts to feel right in that moment is what some of us in the room feel right now. You might not be feeding pigs or working for a farmer. You might not have run away from your father or told him you wish he was dead. But some of us in the room are sitting here right now feeling the exact same thing he was feeling right there. I'll show it to you in a second. But it's this word. It's the word I want to talk to you today about. Unworthy. I mean, he's so ashamed of what he's become, how low his life has gotten, that all he can think about when he thinks about himself is, I am so unworthy of anything. Nobody's given me any food. I don't even deserve food. Nobody's given me any money. I don't deserve money. He had this moment of clarity. And I love how the Bible says it. Let me show it to you. Starting in verse 17. It says, when he finally came to his senses. I love that. that. That's what has to happen. When you get to rock bottom, rock bottom is worthless if you don't finally come to your senses. 
You just stay at rock bottom. But if you come to your senses, something could change. Something could be different at that point. But he says he finally came to his senses. Now here's what he thinks. He said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I'm dying of hunger. So here's his plan. You ready? He says, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy. There's that feeling. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. This is his plan. He's sitting there eating pig slop, and he's thinking, even the slaves back in my dad's house don't live like this. Even they have enough food to eat. So I'll go home. I'll tell my dad I screwed up, that that I sinned against him and against God. And I know I'm not worthy anymore to be part of the family. But would you at least let me be one of your slaves so I could have something to eat? That's his plan. It actually doesn't sound like an awful plan. He has this moment of clarity. He comes to his senses. He gets real humble. Kind of rock bottom has this way of humbling you. Humble is a good spot to be in. Because where, where pride tricks you into hiding, humility leads you into healing every time. You're not going to find anybody that gets healed from the Lord that isn't humble. You don't come to God and be like, God, I'm so great. Now make me even better. Lord, I've really crushed this life so far, so give me a bunch of blessing. It doesn't work like that. You come to God hat in hand. Owning your own mistakes, your own messes, humble, and he'll heal you. This is this guy's plan. He's going to go, to go to his father and beg to be one of his servants. And I wonder what it will take for you. I just wrote in my notes today. I wonder what it will take for you to stop hiding. And whether your hiding is fear of somebody finding you out, and so you wear this mask of like, I'm all good when you're really messed up. Or whether your hiding is like some distant land where you're just like, hey, I look the part on a Sunday morning and at work on Monday morning, but on Friday night, I'm doing what I want. Living however I feel like. You're not going to tell me what to do. I don't know what your hiding looks like, but I wonder what it will take for you to stop your hiding, to stop handling things on your own, to stop running away from God's plan. If you've gone to church here for a long time, you've heard me say this many times, but you can hide or you can heal, but it is impossible to do both at the same time. You can't do both. Imagine if you walked into the doctor's office and the doctor's like, tell me what your symptoms are, what's wrong? And you're like, I'm good, doc. Well, you want me to check your blood pressure, pressure, your temperature, your pulse? No, you don't even have to check. I'm good to go. How's he going to heal anything? If you can't own your symptoms... You can't be honest about who you are and what you're struggling with. How's the doctor ever going to heal you? So here he's going to put this plan into practice. Look at it, verse 20. I love this. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, you can underline that too, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Now his son's going to put the plan into action. You ready? So verse 21, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. 
But the father wasn't trying to hear any of that. So in verse 22, it says, But the father said to his servant, almost like he's ignoring what the son said, like, ah, that plan's no good. So the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Dress him up, clean him up, give him our riches. Whatever we've got, give it to him. Verse 23, And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead. Here comes the point again of all three stories. You ready? For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. I love that. I love that. And I just want to point out a couple things to you about the story. Here's the first one. Just like last week, did you notice what didn't happen? Did you notice what didn't take place? Like, nowhere in there did he pay restitution. The, the dad didn't ask him for the money back. The dad didn't say, like, tell me what you've done with all the money so I can tell you how bad all that was. And then, yeah, I'll put you to work so you can pay me back. He didn't do any of that. He didn't beat him up about where he had been or what he had been doing. He's like, I want to know where you've been. Now, if you're coming back home, you're going to live under my roof. Now, I want to know what you've been up to. He didn't do any of that. He just loved him. This is ridiculous. We can't operate this way. People will just do whatever they want. You can't just let people get away with their sin. You can't just keep hanging out with them as if it's no big deal. You can't just keep pretending like their wickedness is okay. Don't you understand? If I don't do that, they'll never come back home. I'll never reach any of them. I have to get together with them. It's not calling what they're doing right. The father never says, like, way to go with all those hookers and drinks. He doesn't say that. He just loves on them. He just has compassion for them. He just gives them some of his riches. And the other thing I want you to notice about that passage is like, what was it that actually drove the younger son to come back home? It was that he was absolutely confident in his dad's desire to be loving and kind, even to his servants. That there was nobody on the planet that this son could fathom his dad not helping. He's sitting with the pigs, eating slop, thinking to himself, even if he just lets me be a slave, I'll be better off than I am now. I know my dad's character. He's not going to let me starve to death. What is it that is going to drive all the sinful people to Jesus? It won't be my judgment. It won't be my condemnation. It won't be them coming through the doors of my church and me saying to them, like, you're so screwed up. I mean, condemnation is the problem. What makes you think it will be the solution? Judgment and shame and feeling like a piece of trash, like you're unworthy, is what got you away from the Father. What is it that makes me think if I let them know how screwed up they are, that all of a sudden they'll run home to God? They already feel like a piece of dirt. 
How do I know? Because they're trying to mask it and cover it up with another needle or another bottle. How do I know? Because they're trying to pretend like it doesn't really hurt by jumping into the next relationship as quick as they can. How do I know? Because their whole life screams, I'm ashamed of who I am. And the real them never makes Instagram. The real them never walks through the door. It's always the hiding them. And what do you think's going to get them out of hiding? Calling them out for how wicked they've been? They already know that. That's why they're hiding. I love that about this story. And I love it that the dad was like on the lookout. Well, while he was still far away, the dad runs to him. Can't even hear what he's trying to say. Yeah, he came humbly with a, a, a broken, rock-bottom spirit. Yes, that's important. But the dad didn't even focus on that. The dad was just like, you're here. I love you. Just ran and hugged and kissed him. So I brought a rose with me today. These are on sale at Kroger, by the way. If you need to get roses for somebody this weekend, you can get a whole bunch of them for like four bucks. I thought roses were like 50 bucks. I don't know if these are plastic or what, but this is like super cheap at Kroger. If you want to, they're not even paying our church to advertise for them. I did that, so. But uh, I wanted to share this with you today. So there's a preacher I listen to sometimes, and about 11 years ago, he was preaching this sermon, and I watched it on YouTube, and he told a story from his life. This is not from my life. This is from his life, but he's telling this story from his life when he was a freshman in college. He was a freshman in college, and he had some Christian friends, and he said he went into class one day, and he was sitting in class, and beside him in class was sitting a 26-year-old single mom who had come back to school to try to get her degree. So he becomes friends with her, and, and uh, he and some of his friends were, were trying to like reach her with the good news about Jesus. She wasn't a Christian. She wasn't in church. She didn't really care about the things of God. And they were trying to share God's truth with her and love on her and treat her with grace and kindness. And so he said that like they would even go babysit her kid for her sometimes so she could go out and do things. And they would talk with her all the time. And, and he said that in the moment, she was actually having like an affair with a married guy. And they would talk about that sometimes. She would ask questions like, does God say that's all right? And am I allowed to do that? Or all that. And they would talk through some of these spiritual questions and issues. And, and that was kind of the relationship they had with this girl. And he said uh, uh, one weekend they decided to invite her to go with them to a concert. A buddy of theirs was playing music in town. Guy they know was in a band. And so uh, they invite her to come with uh, with them and tell her they're going to a concert. It was like one of those, it was like something Brad would do. It was like a Christian thing. So it's like they thought they were going to a concert, but they were going to like backdoor the gospel on them. You know what I mean? You, like anybody grew up in church or you know what I'm talking about. It's like, hey, come to this youth activity. Then you get there, like somebody preaches at you. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, yeah, it's like under the guise of come have fun. That's okay, you know, but that's what it was. So they go and he says like, uh, they're, they're, he's there beside this girl in the, in the crowd and his buddy um, plays music and they, they like crushed it. Said they did a great job and she was having a good time. And then he said this guy got up to preach and he brought this rose with him. And he got up and he said to everybody, he was like, today I want to talk with you about sex. And, and, and this guy who's telling the story says that he was like a little afraid right then because he knows this lady that he brought to this event is right in the middle of having an affair with a married guy. He's like, oh, this guy's going to crush her, you know. 
And, uh, and he says that he takes this rose and he just passes it around the crowd. Can I give that to you? Just pass it through the section here. Is that okay? Like one at a time. Take, take a little bit more time than Johnny did. Okay. Smell the rose. He said, I want you to smell the rose. I want you to touch it. I want you to feel the texture of the petals. I want you to like touch the stem, smell it, get it real close, share it with everybody around you, pass it around the room so everybody can smell it. And then he said, while they were passing the rose around, Raven, we'll have to ask you to leave if you don't. And so, and then he said, while they were passing the rose around, he said, the guy went on to give what he considered to be maybe the worst, least biblical sex talk he had ever heard. And he said it was stuff like, uh, you know, you don't, it's all fun and games till somebody comes back with herpes and like everybody wants to have sex until the whole class has syphilis. And it was like fear mongering and just like totally trying to scare everybody into not having sex because they don't want to mess up their life, right? And so he's like, and so he just goes on and on. And then he says, who's got my rose? And, and he asks, and then some kid like in the crowd, can I have the rose a second? You've really disrupted this entire section right here. I'll be on your report card at the end of the year. And so he asked, and some kid, now this was all like high school and college students, a lot like Raven, right, at this, uh, at this event. And he said, some kid in the back had the rose. He brought it up. And he said, when the kid brought the rose up, the stem was like busted. And the leaves were like, they had mangled the thing, you know. It's just like passing it around. Like what? Yeah, just like that. They had ruined the whole rose, right? And he said, then the guy holds the rose up and he says, now tell me something. Who would want this rose now? You get what he was trying to say? You pass your sexuality around. You let people use it and do whatever you want and messes you up. And he holds up this rose like, and who would want this rose now? And this guy said, he was just a freshman in college, he said, it was all I could do. I was feeling so angry in my soul at this guy that he wasn't even preaching the gospel. He had made up his own religion. And he said, it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose. That's who wants it. The same person who wanted it before. That's exactly what the gospel message is. That we are all messed up and broken and devastated and we've made a complete disaster of things. But Jesus wants us and died for us and loves us and is hunting for us and is looking under the furniture for us and is waiting with binoculars for us to turn down his road and be like, I'm here, and run to us and hug us and kiss us and call for the best clothes and the best sandals and the rings and start the feast and get the party going. Because my son or my daughter who was lost is now home. They, they, they were dead, but now they're alive. That's the gospel. And if you feel unworthy and if you feel ashamed, Jesus wants you. And he doesn't want you to pay restitution. And he doesn't want you to make amends. And he doesn't want you to earn back his favor. He doesn't put you in time out. He just loves you and wants to welcome you home. Now that isn't the end of the story. That would be a good end of the story but there's a little bit more to the story and I need you to know it because it drives home the whole point even more. 
The older brother sees what's going on and gets ticked off. I'm going to read it to you, okay? The older brother, maybe we would be ticked off too, but in verse 29 or verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, come in, come in, celebrate, party with us. But he replied, listen to his reply, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, I love that, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. And I got to think, we would be just like that. Now, if I were the dad, I could fix this right now. Like, I'm a problem solver. I'm a fixer, okay? And so, like, I think the dad could have solved this problem right there. All he had to say was this. This is all he would have had to say to his son. He could have just said, like, you know what, son? You're right. It's not fair. You have been a good son. You've always obeyed me and stuck by me and been loyal. And, and, and you know what? Let's go inside together and let's celebrate that your brother's home safely. And I'll tell you what. Let's also celebrate how great you've been. Like, we can celebrate both, right? Like, one of those, you know, like, birthday parties for, like, both the kids. So neither one seems to get the right amount of gifts. Because that's what it's about. He could have just solved it by saying that, right? Like, come on inside. Let's celebrate your brother because he's home and he's safe again. But you know what? Let's also give one up for you because you've been so good and you have been loyal to me. But Jesus is trying to communicate with this story. That's not the point. The celebration... The joy, the rejoicing in heaven by the angels, the, the peaceful feeling from the Father, the relief that you feel if you're God, it doesn't come from your goodness. It doesn't come from how loyal you've been to him. It doesn't come from how long you've stuck by his side or how good you've been over the years. It comes when the lost ones come back. That's the whole point of the stories. That's what the celebration is for. And the guy, the dad in this story, will not minimize the purpose by celebrating somebody's goodness. The whole celebration is that the father loves him no matter what he's done. And he's not going to shrink down that mission, that purpose, that intent, that joy, that party to make it just something because you participated. No, the winner in this story is the lost son. And it had nothing to do with what he did. It was because the dad poured out love on him. And all he really did, he didn't do any work. He didn't pay any money. He didn't, he didn't make anything right. All he did the whole time, you ready, was came to his senses. That's it. He just came to his senses in the pig slop. And thought, he had it all wrong. He, he didn't understand the dad's love. 
He didn't know all the details. He couldn't quote you verses from the Old Testament or tell you how great and pure his life was going to look moving forward. He didn't know any of the information. He had it all messed up. He thought, maybe my dad will let me be a slave over in the corner eating some scraps. Okay, I'll give that a try. And he comes to the dad, and the dad is like, no way, if you want to come home, here I am. I want to meet you. I want to give you everything. And the older son's angry, and I would be angry too. Because I'd be thinking, he doesn't deserve that. He got himself into trouble. Why don't you let him get himself out of trouble, dad? He's getting exactly what he deserves. All of the anger. All of the frustration from the older son. It all comes from that word deserve. Think about it for a second. If the younger son's story was different, if instead of asking for demanding his dad's money and going to some distant country and blowing it, say instead the story was like, hey, the younger son decided to go off to college. And while he was off at college, he got run over by a bus. And they dragged him back home in an ambulance and, and they nursed him back to health. And the dad finally sees him. He's like, oh, I'm so glad you're okay. And he hugs him. He's like, I'm so glad you're safe and alive and home. Let's celebrate. The older brother wouldn't have been ticked. He'd have been like, sweet, he's safe, he's home. Let's celebrate. What he was ticked about was he thought the younger brother was getting away with acting like a jerk and getting rewarded for it. He thought the dad was loving on someone who didn't deserve it. And he was complaining about it. How dare you love on him? How dare you eat a meal with him? How dare you, how dare you spend time with him? And as if to kind of wrap the whole thing up, Jesus is trying to tell us, like, if I don't love on him, if I don't spend time with him, he would never have come home. That's how I reach him. That's how I accomplish the mission. It is my loving character that draws people to me. It isn't judgment and condemnation. It is grace and mercy. And so the father gives his son all this grace and all this glory all at once that he doesn't deserve. Because the truth is the older son doesn't deserve it either. The Pharisees, the religious teachers, didn't deserve it either. The people they were trying to stay away from, that they thought they were better than, that they thought they had righteousness and those people were wicked, they were the same as them. Because none of us deserve it. That's what makes it grace. Grace literally is giving you some reward or blessing that you don't deserve. That's what God gives us, is grace. If I deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. So God, I wrote down in my notes, and I'm going to read this because I've messed it up. If I just, it's like a moment of clarity I had a couple of days ago. So God gives me all of his grace and all of his glory in an instant from his divine goodness whenever I come to my senses. Yet both of those things are realized and revealed to us continually over time into eternity. I get all of God in an instant but he reveals it to me slowly over the rest of eternity. And I wrote down just a quote that kind of came to my mind when I was thinking about that idea this week from Jonathan Edwards, um, the great American preacher. Before there was even a United States, like 300 years ago, 
Uh, he was part of the Great Awakening, and he said in one of his sermons, grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. And that's what happens. I come to my senses, and I humble myself. I come out of hiding, and I own what I've done is sin against God. And I don't have to make it right. He just loves me. And he saves me. And he gives me grace. And at the moment of salvation, that grace begins. And it's the first glimpse I get of glory. And then on into eternity, I get all of glory and all of heaven and all of the reward and all the preciousness that God has to offer. And that is finally when all of that grace is perfected. And I get to see it all. That's what's going on here. That is the truth of God's word. And one day, all of us who have come to our senses and humbly surrendered ourselves to the Father's mercy and his wisdom will receive glory or grace perfected. Will that glory, will that grace begin right now for you? You don't have to run down the aisle. You don't have to say any magic words. What you have to do is come to your senses. Because as long as you think you can keep doing it your own way, God can't help you. As long as you think you're too messed up for him to love, you'll never come home. You'll just keep hiding. But you could come out of hiding today. You, you could be the biggest mess ever. And God will instantly make you a success. All you have to do is come to your senses. Come out of hiding. Trust him instead. I don't know what that sounds like for you. I don't even want to give you the words to say at this point because I want you to be the younger son. I want you to come home to dad. And whatever it is you got to own, whatever it is you got to humble about yourself on the inside to him, you do that one-on-one -on -one with him. And he'll hear you because he's been watching with binoculars hoping you just turn down that road. And as soon as you do, he's going to run to meet you. And he's going to hug you. And he's going to kiss you. And he's going to call for his angels and say, let's celebrate angels. And they're going to rejoice because there is more joy in heaven. There is more excitement in the Father. There is more celebration that takes place when one dirty scumbag comes back to God than when a thousand other people would look at him and be like, look at what I've done for you. So I ask you today, will you humble yourself and come out of hiding? Will you humble yourself and allow God to heal you? Can I pray that you would have the courage to do that? Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, it is a terrifying thing to turn the state of my life over to you. But God, what I pray today is that there would be somebody in our room that can see they're at rock bottom and that it hasn't been working out doing it their own way and that you would give them the courage right now to just come out of hiding and say to you that they have sinned against you. They have messed up their life. They have, they have looked at you and said, you stink, I wish you were dead. but give them the courage to humble themselves right now 
And then just love on them, God, so that they'll know you love them, that they'll know you have compassion for them, that they'll know they don't have to make it all right or earn your favor, that you just want to save them right now. Would you reassure their heart that you've got them if they will just come to their senses today? Would you give courage in our room, God, for that? In Jesus' name I pray. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.